Well, good morning, worshipers. It's good to see everybody. We have a little bit of a different crowd here this morning. What a blessing to see you guys and to worship with you this morning. And uh, what a blessing it is to have God dwelling with us as, as we've been reminded in the songs that we sang. Well, I had a little, uh, little scare this week. I was um, experiencing uh, shortness of breath and couldn't figure out what it was. Of course, you know what's going around. But then I unbuttoned the button on my pants and whew, everything just f- fixed itself for some reason. And I stole that off of Lisa's Facebook. I saw her little joke on there. It was Kermit. Kermit the Frog was saying that. Couldn't resist. Well, uh, in the wake of COVID-19 and everything that we've been experiencing uh, in these unprecedented times, I decided to you know, tackle some topics that seemed to unfold with us as things unraveled. And we looked at things pertinent to this. We looked at God's judgment. We looked at anxiety. We looked at loneliness. And then last week, we looked at the importance of unity in the body when everywhere else we look seems to be divisive. And um, I think that from the time we first started, things have changed a little bit. So what I want to do is is preach a sermon on a topic this morning that I think will serve to just kind of pull everything together or maybe, better said, just wrap things up. Because I think we're kind of moving on into different phases, and so I don't want to just stay in that one spot. So I want to talk about a topic that I think will serve us well in light of everything that is now behind us, but also in light of everything that still stands ahead of us. I think that the stories and the passages that we read in God's word will truly minister to our hearts. And what I want to do is talk about the relational character of God. And it's a common thing, but I want to remind us of how profound and important the relational character of God is to us. And Noah, as he always does, nailed it with the songs that he picked. And I send him sermon information ahead of time. And he picks songs and he, he just nails it. And so as I think as we read these stories and think about what God is saying, a lot of the, th- the truths that we just put into words and sang to him will come to bear. But the way I want to introduce this topic is by asking some rhetorical questions. And so, and then answering them. I'm going to ask them and then I'm going to answer them for you, if you will. So one of the questions would be, to introduce this, would be, okay, so we talked about God's judgment. And one of the things that was on a lot of people's mind when this, this unknown virus and all of the data and the gloomy statistics came out, it was, is this some kind of judgment from God? Is, is God doing something here? Is God trying to get our attention? And if pain, as C.S. Lewis says, if pain is God's megaphone... What is his message? What is he trying to say? And you would say, well, he is trying to get our attention to bring us to repentance. As Luke 13 said, and we looked at Luke 13, and that is when tragedy or something happens in life, don't look at other people's lives and what what did you do to deserve that? But look into your own heart, lest you be excluded from the kingdom of God. And then I would say, okay, that's right. Repentance is is what God is trying to get our attention to. And uh, why would we need to repent? Or what would we need to repent of? And you would say, well, 
whatever sin that is alienating us from God. Whatever we have, and it was probably different from everybody, whatever it is that, that causes us to offend God, that's the sin or sins that we need to uh, repent of. It perverts all, that's, all the good that God has done. All the good that God has created to bring Him glory. And then I would ask, well, what's the problem with sin? And you would say, well, sin alienates us from God. It separates us from God. It it cuts us off from God because God's a holy God, a pure God. And then I would ask, well, if sin separates us from God, then what's the benefit of being forgiven? And you would say, well, it brings us back into the presence of God. It restores us. And then I would say... And what benefit is that? And you would say, well, I don't know exactly, but it's got something to do with the relational character of God because I don't know where you're going, but I know what the sermon title is. And I would say, good answer. But what I want to do is if we think about all that happens in redemption, the plan of redemption, as we think about sin, I want to show us how the, the, the purpose or the goal of redemption, forgiveness, and the extension of Grace by God is not just to forgive us and cleanse us and then set us free as if it's a get out of jail free card. It's to cleanse us and to set us free to bring us back in to a relationship that God desires to have with his children. The the plan of redemption and even sin itself, we we think of sin as it's yucky, it's dark. It's divisive, it separates us, it cuts us off from God. And that's true, but sin really is a very relational term. We fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But sin is really a relational term, as are all redemptive and doctrinal terms. Because the, the goal of all of the plan of redemption is not just to set us free or so we can feel better about ourselves. It is so that we can enter back into the unique a relationship in which we were created to begin with for God. And we're not used to thinking of sin in relational terms. So my point is that the fall and the restoration of man has to do with the relational nature of God. And that all that Christ has accomplished for us are not just cold judicial facts, but everything that Christ has accomplished for us are very intimate, personal and personable acts of friendship and fellowship from God. If you think about it, all the things that we've talked about so far, well, they're relational as well. You think about judgment. Well, judgment um, uh, is, is a relational thing because if we've offended God, we certainly want to get back in a right relation with God. If you think about anxiety, it has to do with us wanting to be in control. Jesus says the remedy is, trust me, I've got a plan. I am in control. You were never in control to begin with. That's relational. To have faith in God, it's a relational thing. It's saying, I know who you are and I'm putting my trust in you. Loneliness, it's, it's a relational thing. We were created to fellowship and commune with one another and and share ourselves and interact. And God says, I'm always with you. You're never, when you're a believer, you are never, ever alone. And then when you think about unity and the, the, uh, the way you achieve hum, um, 
unity through humility, it's by considering others. That's a very relational thing. You have to think about the good of others, the preciousness of others. See, all of the big issues, really, that we're facing in life and that the pandemic kind of brings out of us, they're relational items, they're relational topics. And, of course, we know that the most important thing is our vertical relationship with God. So the the remedy of these things is that we would enter back in to a relationship. So I want to take some time this morning to talk about that, the importance of it, uh, and, and to realize that it's, it's, all of these things are a means to the end, and the, mean, the end is in the Gospels that we get God. But what about God? It's that He dwells in us, and we are reunited, and we are restored. And the way I want to do this is by visiting some very familiar passages in Scripture. Uh, and it will drive this home, and it kind of builds. So if, you, if you're wondering, well, where does he go with this? By the end, you will definitely know. So hang with me here, if you will. And I want to look at Genesis chapter 3, the first 11 verses. We're going to begin with that. And in the book of Genesis, the first chapter, um, God does all the talking. He creates by fiat. He brings things into existence simply by the power of his word. They once were not there in existence. He speaks them into existence. And then he pronounces them good. So that's basically chapter 1. In chapter 2, God does more talking. But then Adam does a little bit of dialoguing or talking. He names the animals. And he also is very excited in chapter 2 and about the fact that God created for him a companion, a helpmate, another one, another man that's like he is, that he can share himself with, and that is woman. And he says, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Then in chapter 3, we're introduced to a kind of a new form of communication, and that is the question. It's not until chapter 3 do we find a form of communication in a question. And the very first question in the Bible is asked by Satan. And he says, did God really say? And that in itself is countless sermons. That was the first question in the Bible. But that's not the question that I want to focus on when we read this passage. The question I want to focus on is the second question in the Bible, but it's the first question that God asks. The first question. So let's see what that is as we look at the first 11 verses in the book of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then... Or, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So God's first question to his creature, his creation, man, in verse 9, where are you? And I believe that that question still reverberates throughout the universe regarding God's relationship to man. As he peers into the hearts of every individual that he created ever since the fall. I believe the question goes out, where are you? Where are you in life? Where are you in your standing with me. And that question is a very, very profound and powerful thing. And here's why. When you consider the context, when you know what you know, as a matter of fact, you read this story and you know more than Adam and Eve knew when they lived it. This has got to be one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. In light of what God has just brought into existence. Creation. Everything is in perfect harmony. Everything is meaningful and purposeful. And has a relationship perfectly interacting with everything for the glory of God. It's, it's harmonious. It's brimming with life. Creation. Everything that's in existence is brimming over with divine Glory. God created man in his own image to be in this kind of relationship with him. He, he created him to be able to be in a relationship, to think and, and to speak and to communicate what's in his heart and how he feels and what he sees and to dialogue and to think things through. And as a moral being, and, and this took place. He created him to be in the essence of what the, the greatest potential of any relationship, and that is a relationship that's perfectly true, it's perfectly pure, and there is absolutely nothing to hide. It's a relationship that is as open as it possibly can be. Nothing in the darkness, everything is perfectly in the light. No suspicions, no deception. And here, in this chapter, 
we see God walking, calling out to man. Where are you? And we see man responding in the exact opposite way of that he was created. And now he's hiding. He's feeling shame, which is indicative or metaphorical for all the sin and all the guilt, the nakedness. Exact opposite. Now you would think, and based on what we know about God and how holy He is, and and, and how pure He is, that this might be one of those vein-popping moments of wrath and vengeance. It might be one of those moments where somebody slams their fist on the ground or on the table or whatever. And yet here is God. All that man has done, and He says, Where are you? His first concern is what? Relationship. Even when we rebel, even when we clearly do what we know is wrong, even when we do something really, really, really foolish, don't hide from God. He desires to relate with you, even in your sin, even in your foolishness. So what is God doing? He's walking towards them. He's pursuing them. He knows what happened. To what? To work it out. To reason, to talk, to work out what just happened. He's making a proclamation in this, in this question, in this pursuit that he's a relational God, even when we blow it, you see? He still, he still cares. There's still an investment there. He still wants a relationship in light of all that has taken place. Now, this is stunning to me because of what we know in the rest of Scripture and how it unfolds. See, as, as bleak, And sick as Adam and Eve were feeling because of what they had done. And they'd never felt guilt before. This was new. Yeah, it made them wise, all right. It brought them into a new level of existence, all right. It brought them into sin and death and decay. And and they're all twisted up. They're terrified. And that is nothing compared to what God knows about the consequences of what just happened. See, God knows because of this, so much more than they do, He knows that now a sacrifice has to be made in order for mankind to be in relationship with Him. He knows the whole plan of redemption needs to begin now because of this offense against a magnificent God. He knows that in order for Him to be appeased and in order for this relationship to take place, He has to appease Himself. He has to offer the sacrifice because of our sin nature. There is nothing that man can do to appease God. We need to know that God calls. Different stages of our life. There's always that, where are you? What are you doing with your life in relation to me? It reminds me of that 
real popular verse in Revelation in Revelation three twenty, uh, where the triune God says, "Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him. I will come in and eat with him or dine with him, and he with me." If that's not God pursuing relationship, I don't know what is. Revelation 3.20. I'm, I'm here. I'm knocking. I know what you've done. And I want to talk about it. I want to work it out. I want to explain myself. And remind you of who I am as your king. Tell me about yourself and let me reveal myself to you. Working it out. Now, we don't want to mistake God's relational character with softness. And that's a big mistake that people make these days. That we see God as so mushy, so loving. He's just mushy and he, and he just will do anything to be in relationship with us. And that's not quite the, the, the slant that Scripture takes. It's not a softness because sin has to be dealt with according to his very strict standard of righteousness and justice. But what he's saying is there's no need to hide and cover yourself up because if you will commune with me and fellowship with me and reason with me, I will reveal to you that I already have a plan to cover your sin. I already have a plan to cleanse your conscience and to remove the guilt from you. And my plan isn't that you do what it takes to work your way back into relationship with me. My plan is that you understand my plan and embrace it by faith. It's a plan of grace. And that's the invitation. So we don't need to hide and cover. God has his own plan to cover. And if you think about it, when we hide from God and we avoid God, what does that accomplish? Is that a good plan to hide and avoid in anything in the reality of life? To stick our head in the sand... God is pursuing here. And he has this plan. He's got the cost all worked out. We just need to come out from behind the tree so he can explain on his terms where do we go from here. What does it look like to work out a relationship under these circumstances? What God is willing to do is absolutely incredible and supernatural. To change us back into what we were created to be supernaturally so that we can commune and fellowship with the Lord. He is an incredible God. Now, because of this sin, you know the story. God can't dwell with sin. He's holy. And so man is expelled from the garden and an angel with a flaming sword is posted or stationed at the gate the opening, which clearly communicates, I'm here in paradise and you are out there in sin under the curse of brokenness and you cannot enter back into here by any means. And then what does this holy God do? He says, you can't come into here. But what he does is he steps over the gate into our broken, fallen cursed, sinful, deceptive, 
dark world. To what? In essence, to work things out with us, throw us over his shoulder and bring us back in to the kingdom of God as a citizen. What God is doing even right now in our own hearts and what he's doing in this world is supernatural and incredible and relational and personal and intimate. What a plan that he has. Where are you? Now, to be clear, when I say God wants to talk to us and work this thing out, what I, what I don't mean is that God wants to negotiate with us. It's not like, hey, I want to tell me about your weaknesses and your feelings and, and we'll negotiate this and the severity of your pain and your flaws and your weaknesses. It's not, that's not at all what God means by working things out. And, and by the way, when Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden and he asked this question, where are you? It's not because they were camouflaged so well that he couldn't see them. You see? He, he knows where they are. He knows everything that they have done. And he knows the outrolling of the consequences of this. And yet he still seeks and pursues. So what I mean by working out, coming to terms, it means... Coming to the monarch's terms, it's not negotiating and, well, I'll do this if you do that. See, he's a, he's a covenant-making God. And we're the ones that change. He never changes. And so as a covenant-making God, as the one who's in the power, the, the monarch or the absolute ruler, he sets the terms and you either enter into those terms or not, but they're all on his terms. Nothing is negotiated or, or fudged or slipped. God keeps it very exacting. I mean working it out in the sense that Paul uses it in Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, where he says to the believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what the plan of redemption is doing. That's what God is doing in us right now. He's working in us. For his good pleasure. And what he does is basically he, he doesn't fudge his standards. He wins us over to the right and best way of doing things. They blew it big time. Things will never be the same in that sense. They set in motion. And God knows this as he's walking towards them in the cool of the day. They set in motion the most heinous future. And God seeks after them. So you realize that because of that sin and in their hiding, that every tragedy that we have ever known or experienced or read about is because of that moment. And there they are, hiding. So God pursues this relationship. He fulfills his own standard by sending his son, his own sweat, his own blood. He bears the cost of all of this. Even though in his mind he can see every every rape, every murder, every divorce, every addiction, every incarceration, 
every kind of form of brokenness and disease and even natural disaster, everything that will unroll all the evil and Satan wreaking havoc on man is because of this act of disobedience. Where are you? Now watch how this truth unfolds here as we look at another very familiar passage in Matthew 18, and that's the parable of the lost sheep as it reveals the relational character of God. So in verses 10 through 14, Matthew 18, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is Jesus talking. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went away or went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, the first couple verses there about despising, you'll remember when we study the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is teaching and he's uh, literally, literally little children come into the, the play there on the scene and he's talking about literal children. But then it shifts and children become talking about his children, in other words, true believers. And so by the time we get here, he's actually talking about children of God, not little children. And he says, don't despise other believers. Don't look down upon them as if you are superior to them and, and have nothing to do with them. As a fact, matter of fact, I'm a good shepherd and I pursue them. They're very precious to me and very valuable to me. I don't write them off. I pursue them. And that's how the king of kings operates. And that's how the kingdom operates. So he goes to great lengths to, to bring in and to preserve and then verse 12 is a rhetorical question. Would he go after? Would he leave the 99 and go after the one? And, and the answer is, yeah, of course he would. Now, in real life, this is a parable uh, intended to teach a, a real life lesson. But in real life, a farmer wouldn't get that excited about finding a sheep because, or any kind of livestock because you can't have this kind of relationship with animals. You, know, you you would definitely go after your livestock because if you don't, eventually they keep disappearing. You're going to go broke because that's your livelihood or you need that meat on the table, whatever reason you're doing this. But he's telling this in the uh, with the understanding that he is the good shepherd and that these are his children. So these are believers. And in this parable, one of the believers, one of the sheep has gone astray, has broken fellowship, left the fellowship, broken off relationship, is, is walking in some kind of rebellion or disobedience and the story doesn't say maybe they're in hiding and that's why they need to be pursued or maybe they're living in open rebellion and sin like the prodigal. We don't know. But the idea is that they have left the safety of the fold and the good shepherd has left the 99 and is looking for him, walking, searching, calling, looking for the one. That he is revealing himself here in this parable, Jesus, as the one who is looking for you if you have disobeyed, if you have strayed, 
if you have broken fellowship and walked away from the fold. Why? Because you are valuable to Him. You are a treasure to Him. See, we have committed acts that go against everything that God is and stands for, and He has every right to, to hunt us down with a double barrel shotgun, if you will. And yet he comes looking, calling, leaving. I mean, who leaves the 99 for the one? You're not taught that in secularism. That's not what pragmatism teaches. It's not what utilitarianism teaches. It's what the gospel teaches. It's what you find in the Bible that every single individual counts and counts dearly to God. God created us with something very specific in mind. And there's a lot that goes into it, but one of those things is so that we can be friends with God. So that what He has packed into us can come back out of us in a way that glorifies Him through an honest, open righteous relationship on His terms. That's the best and only way to do it. He has created each of us with something unique that He desires, that He loves, that's good. And the plan of redemption is to win it back. It's to take it back. It's to redeem it, to restore that. So, what, there's over uh, 7.5 billion people in the world now. And every single one of them created with something special and unique to God. I don't know what it is. I know it has something to do with the fact that we're created in His image. And that the more we image God, the more glory He gets. But I don't know what specific thing it is. But I know that every individual is created in, 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 with His unique craftsmanship. To offer Him something and to, uh, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Christ, the Good Shepherd, is looking for that. He wants that treasure that He has invested in us. And He wants to clean it up and restore it and make us new creations. To bring us into that relationship. We're all alike, but we all have things that are on God's way of thinking. Special to Him. So the Good Shepherd's calling, looking Walking, pursuing. Where are you? You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. Now, let me just start to drive this home a little bit as we close. Now, you're in the car driving. And you got a packet of peanut M&M's. Or your favorite candy. And you're driving and you're reaching in and you're eating your M&M's. And you're in kind of a form of heaven on earth. Because you love this stuff. And you reach in to grab one and you drop it on the floorboard. One of your M&M's. Now, if you're like me, here's what you're going to do. You're going to risk your life. <laughs> to go down and to drive and get that one M&M that has gone astray. I love even the fallen ones. You see? Now, I still have a half a bag. Why not just the, the rest of them in there, the 20 or 30 that are still left? Why not just care for them and enjoy them? Because there's one that I want. And it's just as good as these other ones. So I'm going to go after it. Now let's just bring that a little closer to home or 
put it on a little more serious level. Let's say you have 12 children. And all of your 12 children, you and you, you're in this, this great, beautiful, loving, trustful relationship. You really enjoy each other's presence. And then child number three rebels. Child number three just leaves and cuts you off. And it's gone. Completely. Well, what do you feel? You feel great loss. You say, but wait a minute, you still have 11 kids. You still have 11 incredible relationships. It's not the same. I love those relationships and that's good and it brings me joy. But there's this one that brings grief and loss and, and, and a form of suffering. And the fact that I have the 11 good relationships that are close and intimate do not make up for the loss that I have in the one that has broken himself or herself off from me because I want that one too. That's how the Father's heart is towards us. Or even on a more serious note. How about the loss of a child? My mom gave birth to nine children. And when I was just a little boy, my older sister died. And her friends, my mother's friends, meaning well, meaning to give her comfort, would come to her and say something to the effect of, well, thank the Lord that you still have the other eight. She never forgot how painful that was to her, and I know. Because she shared that with me when I lost my son. Can I just say to you, it's not the same. Whatever you have is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's a blessing. But when you lose, it's not the same. Because of the relational character of our God. Relationships were created to run so deep that you cannot pull them up or damaging them without it feeling like your heart has been ripped out of your body. And that's good because that's what relationships are intended to be. And that's what God pursues. And this is the God that I want us to know during this time of redemptive history. This is the God I want us to know as we still have things ahead of us and the unknowns. And confusion, this is what I want us to know as the temptation to grow anxious calms. Or this is what I want us to know as the temptation to be lonely or disunified calms. This is the God that I desire all of us to seek. That all of us would adore and understand and work it out with Him. The lengths that He has gone and what He desires to get back out of us because He put it in us. And that we would all go higher up. And further in, in our relationship and fellowship 
with the Almighty God. And Jesus says in John chapter 6, as he's praying, the good shepherd is praying to the good, good father. And he says what none of us can say. And he says, I will not lose one. And as much as I love my children, or as much as I love my wife, or as much as I love my friends, I cannot make that promise because I'm not that powerful, but God is. And we can take comfort in the veracity and the depth of the truth and the promises that God speaks to us because what He says, He will do. So, church family, take comfort in your God. God created you to give Him something that no one else can. And I implore you to come to God on His terms and live in His light. And for the rest of your days and for eternity, share in the relational character of God. May God bless the preaching of His Word.